Welcome to Hot of the Cloud by Cloud on Out. We are your hosts, Andreas and Michael Wittig. Our weekly show is all about the latest AWS news, our recent experience with building on AWS. And on top of that, we are answering your questions at the end of the show. So um, use the hashtag AskCloudOnOut on Twitter or send us direct mes messages over Twitter or LinkedIn. Or in case you're watching this live, um, feel free to use the chat and ask your questions there. So Michael, um, there were a lot of news uh, in the past week uh, from AWS, a lot of announcements. So reInvent is, I think it's one week away now. So uh, by the way, we are yes. not traveling to Las Vegas this year. So we are watching it uh, from here, from Germany. Um, but yeah, it's already um, obvious that <laughs> we have pre-invent, pre entered the pre-invent phase and there's really a lot going on. So which announcements got your attention, Michael? Yeah, so the first one that I picked is um, um, it's it's titled Amazon S3 Clayter improves restore throughput by up to 10x when retrieving large volumes of archive data. And basically when I unpack this, the, what they did is they increased the rate limit for uh, restore requests and it is now 10 times higher. So you can now uh, um, basically send uh, 100, uh, sorry, no, not 100,000, but 1,000 uh, transactions per second uh, against the API. And this means that if you restore uh, restore many uh, objects from Glacier, this is now uh, 10 times uh, quicker because you can um, submit um, yeah, more chops, more, basically more restores at the same time. So if you need to restore lots of files, uh, it is now um, much faster than before. So the performance improvement is 90%. Yeah, so I think one of the uh, ones that were um, very um, celebrated in the community is um, AWS AppSync GraphQL API supports JavaScript resolvers. So to be honest, so before you had to uh, write your resolvers in um, the Apache Velocity template language. Um, so I did so many times, but to be honest, I never really <laughs> got into that. So it, I was always struggling with that. So of course, in the end, I, I, I could figure it out, but it took me quite some time. So I think um, having that in JavaScript is probably more convenient, especially for me as I'm um, developing in JavaScript, TypeScript um, all the time. So um, basically how that works, so I looked a little bit into um, the documentation and into some examples. So Basically, what you need to do is you implement um, a request function and a response function in, in JavaScript. And um, what is important to note is that um, those JavaScript resolvers, they run in a runtime, which uh, provides functionality similar to ECMAScript version 6. And uh, it, But it all also only supports a subset of the features. So it does not support all the available features uh, of the language. So you need to, yeah, you need to check out the documentation. So of course the obvious things are there. So string manipulation, JSON handling, stuff like that. But there is definitely something missing. And uh, the other interesting thing is that um, AWS also released two uh, modules. Um, which, which are called AWS AppSync Utils and AWS AppSync uh, ESLint plugin. 
And basically, those help you to write those um, JavaScript resolvers. They have pre-built functions for dealing, for example, reading data from DynamoDB and so on. So that simplifies the whole process. And with the ESLint plugin, um, you have a plugin that allows you to uh, check your code before you upload it and make try to avoid um, mistakes there. And the other thing that is really cool about that announcement is that um, it's already supported by CloudFormation. <laughs> so that's cool. Uh, that That's really cool. And um, the only thing that, uh, the only issue I have, I still have with AppSync, and I, I, as far as I could uh, tell, there's still no way to uh, throttle or rate limit requests by tenant or user. So um, as we know, Michael, from uh, running Marbot, uh, which, which uses the, the REST API, API gateway, it's really important to be able to rate limit uh, your users um, because you will have users that send you much, much, much too many requests. Um, so I'm still missing that feature. I think the only option we have is the web application firewall in front of the uh, in front of AppSync, mm -hmm. and there the only thing you have is IP-based rate limiting, which is not the same thing, I would say. So yeah, I think this is really um, a missing feature for production-ready workloads running on AppSync. But yeah, but still the JavaScript resolvers are really cool. I'm looking forward to use them. Yeah. I think it kind of simplifies uh, things a little bit. Um, so I, I wonder how it turns out. Like, question is, so what what is put into the the new JavaScript resolvers? I mean, you could put probably too much business logic into your resolvers. So the kind of the question is, when do you switch to a Lambda function, basically? Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I think that's kind of something that that you have, we have to find out now. And I'm also wondering if this is kind of the same technology that is used by CloudFront functions, um, because. I think there's a similar limitation, so mm -hmm. I'm not sure Maybe. if it uh, kind of shares anything in the back end. So if anyone knows that, that would be really interesting to know. So maybe we get a reinvent talk about the internals here. All right. Um, so Andreas, the next one that I picked is, um, I think it helps um, at least with one pain that, that we had in the past. And the, the release is on well, the new features that you can now assign multiple MFA devices um, to IAM users and also the root user of an AWS account. So, for example, um, their, the Security Hub um, has um, best practices or standards, what they call it, and they tell us that the root user should use an MFA device. Um, but the problem is, I mean, if it's one MFA device and it, it, I mean, where do you put it? So, for example, we live in two different cities and we manage the company. So where should this MFA device be located? I mean, should it be in my place or in your place? And what happens if you are not available, but I have to access it and things like that. So this was very difficult in the past. And, and that's why we, we decided not to use hardware MFA tokens for the root users in our um, setup. Um, but but now we could, in theory, have two devices, like one is um, here in, in, in Stuttgart and the other one is at your place in Ulm, Andreas. And, and it, it will work. And I think that's that's really, um, I mean, it helps. And um, it the support is for up to eight MFA devices at the moment. So, uh, I mean, we, we need two, that's good enough, but you could also add actually eight now. So <laughs> if you really need lots of MFA devices, you can do that now. So that's it, Andreas. Um, so what else uh, was um, announced last week? Yeah, so, so I think we definitely should do that. So we could use our YubiKeys for that. You could have yours. I could use mine. So we have, I think in total, we have four YubiKeys. Each of us has a backup key. So 
So it it gets to it adds up to eight MFA devices pretty quickly, probably. Yeah. So the next one that I um, um, found interesting is so AWS opened uh, two more regions in the past week. So I think last time we we announced Switzerland, and now we have um, a new AWS region in Spain, EU South two, and then another uh, region in India in Hyderabad. How do you pronounce that? I think it's Hyderabad, right? Thank you, Michael. And uh, this is AP South 2. So EU South 2 and AP South 2, which is quite cool. So now in total, um, there are 26 commercial regions plus two GAF regions um, plus two regions in China. So in total, it's uh, 30 regions now and even more coming and are already announced. So yeah, this is uh, interesting. That's crazy, yeah. Three new regions in, uh, I think, one or two weeks. <laughs> so that's, <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. yeah. And there's one thing, Andreas, that I was running into using a new, new region that I want to share. Um, so there are, I don't know what the uh, official name is. I think there's somehow kind of uh, essential services or something. So those are rolled out to all new regions. But what I didn't know is that AWS Backup is not such a service. So, for example, in Switzerland, we have no AWS Backup. As well as in Spain, there's no AWS Backup. And also Cognito is not one of those services that are rolled out to all regions. So basically what I have to do now is I have to wait for this announcement. Okay, Cognito is now available in this region and AWS Backup is now available in this region. <laughs> and then I can actually use them because we need AWS Backup and also Cognito in all the regions. Mm. Uh, yeah, so that's uh, something that I learned that those two services are not kind of uh, deployed by default. Yeah, so that's that's also like a announcement that is probably like interesting for the JavaScript and TypeScript developers out there. Um, so Lambda does now support Node.js 18. Um, and there's one, I mean, this is probably cool. Uh, so I like it always. I usually update as quickly as possible, but this time it's a little bit trickier. <laughs> so by default in Node.js or I mean up to Node.js 16, there was the AWS SDK version two bundled into the runtime. So what you could do is you could just require or import AWS-SDK and it just worked. And with uh, the um, Node.js uh, version 18, AWS Lambda decided that they now bundle the a SDK version 3. And SDK version 3 works a little bit different than version 2. And we have a video about that. Um, so the differences and the, the pitfalls, basically. So you have to, I mean, it's not... It's not super super complicated because the parameters kind of stay the same, uh, but the structure, the, what you need to import, how you create a client, and, and this changes a little bit. So um, yeah, that's that's work that needs to be done. And I I mean I wonder um, why, but I mean why can they not ship both versions at least for kind of uh, in maybe they can then switch in in Node twenty or something to to version three. But uh, yeah, we we don't have any um, um, uh, way here besides. I mean, what we can do is we can bundle the AWS SDK version 2 in our uh, bundles. Then we basically increase the size of the bundles. And uh, that's also like an option. I mean, of course, that's possible. Yeah, so I think, uh, I don't know, Andreas, uh, I have not yet decided if we should just basically wait. <laughs> and, I mean, at some point in time, we have to do it, right? But <laughs> it's always the same with those breaking <laughs> changes. I mean, they annoy basically everyone. And I don't know why it's uh, so uh, important. But I think that the reason why it's so important for AWS, and we talked about this before, is that, I mean, the, the, the big change in version three, and that's, I mean, that's kind of, you have to kind of think about it, why this is such a big change, is that they, they enable um, HTTP uh, keep alive by default now in the SDK. <laughs> 
which saves them a lot of, I would say, uh, dollars. And I, probably that's the reason why they force us to migrate. So that's my, <laughs> my, um, maybe, um, yeah. yeah. So, so Michael, I looked up what is new in Node.js version 18 because I oh, yeah, didn't cool. know if there's any other reason to do that. So I think, um, so what I found out from um, a very short Google research <laughs> is basically that um, Node.js 18 includes the native fetch API. So remember that doing uh, making an HTTP request <laughs> from Node.js and Lambda was actually quite complicated. Hard, yeah. <laughs> you needed a library and then one of the popular library got sunsetted and, and a lot of switched to Axios and stuff like that. So, mm -hmm. so now we have the native fetch API, which is the, the I would say the new standard for JavaScript. Um, then we have WebStreams API. This is also, I think, interesting. It, it simplifies a little the handling of um, streaming data. So before that, I, also I always struggling with that uh, streaming APIs with those buffers and everything that you need to um, uh, implement. I think it gets a, a lot easier with those WebStream APIs from what I've uh, seen in the examples. And then um, I think... Uh, a few minor as things are the HTTP timeouts can now be configured for the headers, so for receiving the headers from the server, basically. There's a built-in test runner with Node.js 18, so this is probably only uh, important for your local development. Um, yeah, so that, those are, the, I think, the most important uh, changes that I okay. um, could find out about. Another thing that caught my attention is the Amazon CloudFront launches continuous deployment support. So that looked interesting to me for one reason, Michael, because our CloudFront config is quite complicated for CloudNote.io because we are um, doing a lot um, in the configuration. So we're using Lambda at Edge and um, different things. So whenever um, we deploy a change to the, this infrastructure configuration, basically, <laughs> it, it happens sometimes that we, because of a misconfiguration, just break CloudOnout.io in production uh, because there's no good way to test it actually um, in, in, in before before you do the deployment. So that's why I found this announcement interesting because what CloudFront now supports is having basically a staging environment for your distribution. <laughs> and uh, you can then um, send small amounts of traffic to that and test what is going uh, on with that configuration. So how does it work? So there's, by the way, already CloudFormation support for that, which is cool. And you can also do it in the, in the console as well, of course. And basically what you do is you create another distribution, a staging distribution. This is not a standalone distribution. It basically belongs to your main uh, distribution that you um, are going or want to deploy to. Uh, so you... You, con you create a new distribution, you configure that in the way that you want to, you basically with all the new settings that you have. And then you also configure which traffic you want to route to the staging environment. So basically, which parts of the traffic to the, the original distribution you want to forward to the staging distribution. And you can do that either with a header so you could define which header should basically mark traffic that should go to the staging environment. So you can use that so that only your traffic for testing, for example, goes to the staging environment. Or, I don't know, you could set that header for a few beta users or something like that and send them to the staging uh, distribution only. And the alternative is you can also define a weight. Uh, which means then CloudFront sends, I don't know, 1% of the traffic to the staging environment. 
And if you want to, CloudFront can also um, add a header to make sure that basically this session is sticky and you're not switching between the staging environment and the original environment um, to have a, yeah, um, a good experience. And then you can, after you do that, you can basically monitor the results, check your um, CloudWatch metrics for 500s, check the latency, the cache ratio and stuff like that. And then, yeah, then you have basically to do, to deploy the same changes to your primary distribution. So I think that is where the whole thing is a little, I don't, I don't know yet how to use that in, in a real world scenario, because basically what you have to do, then you have to modify the configuration of the original uh, distribution. Um, so when I think about how to do that with infrastructure as code, I would, I don't know, first mod modify uh, and create those staging distribution. And then somehow I have to apply the same change to my original distribution. So basically I could do another commit, I don't know, and going through the pipeline, but that it doesn't really feel, it's not an automated thing that you can just run. So it's not an automated blue-green deployment or something like that. So you have to implement that on your own and with, with infrastructure as code tools like CloudFormation and Terraform, I can't see an easy way to do that basically uh, besides running uh, your changes multiple times through the pipeline. Yeah, um, and then um, talking about um, those things, the limitations. So you cannot use continuous deployment um, when you use a distribution that has enabled HTTP 3. Um, so um, that's a bummer. I don't know why. That's that's just a limitation. And then um, also in AWS says in certain cases, especially under high load, it's possible that they are not sending requests to the staging <laughs> distribution. So because I don't know why, because but that's you basically there's no guarantee that this whole system works under high load. Uh, and I say in in periods of high resource utilization or other cases. <laughs> so <laughs> basically don't know. So if you, I don't know, if you build an, a pipeline on that and really rely on that, you might um, mm -hmm. run into the issue that it's not working and you're not seeing any results. Yeah, but oh, overall, right. I think that's a, a interesting feature for us. Okay, Andreas. So the next one that I have on my list here is that um, it's now, it's a tiny thing, I guess, but you can basically now create an AWS account in CloudFormation, and this includes um, uh, organizational units and the policy. So basically, AWS organizations now is available in CloudFormation. And there are a couple of limitations um, about creating AWS accounts, but I mean, that's not CloudFormation related. It's, um, it's the same if you just hit the API. So for example, you can only provision one account at a time. So I, I wasn't aware of that limit. Um, so basically in CloudFormation, what you need to do is you need, because I mean, by default, it will just create all of them in parallel, right? Um, so uh, you have to depend on a previous account to make sure that uh, only one account is created at a time. Uh, this is, I mean, a little bit uncool, but uh, that's how it is. Uh, not sure why they cannot support that in CloudFormation out of the box that for some resource types, it's only one um, like action going on in parallel, but that's how it is. I started import our uh, org resources, Andreas, into CloudFormation because import uh, works as well. So I created a template and I started with the organizational units and then I uh, moved on to the accounts and then basically you can have everything in your um, in your CloudFormation template, which is, I think, quite cool. Um, and that's it. So what else have you uh, discovered, Andreas? 
Uh, okay, so yeah, so one last little thing. So a few weeks ago, we talked about um, this feature already. So the AWS IAM Identity Center, formerly known as AWS SSO, now supports session management capabilities for the AWS command line interface and the CDKs. Um, so basically what you can do, it's 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 really a simple feature, but it's, I think it's, it's useful. So um, for your SSO, you can configure the session length. And I think uh, before that, it was a fixed session duration of six or eight hours or something like that. And now you have the option to configure that. Um, up to, I think it's up to seven days. Um, and the changing that session duration did not have an effect on the AWS credentials uh, that you, you create with um, AWS SSO, which I do from the command line with AWS SSO uh, login, for example. Um, but now, yeah, now <laughs> with this announcement, um, this is also the session duration is also controlling the length of the session of the temporary AWS credentials for the CLI and SDKs, which is cool. And I think uh, I have one very important use case for that is because we are syncing a lot of uh, big video files to S3 from our local machines. And it happens when I run an AWS S3 sync command from the CLI that um, after um, six hours, the session times out and then uh, it cannot upload the next object in the queue, basically. So uh, I have already increased our session timeout to 24 hours now, Michael. <laughs> so this should uh, solve this issue and allow us to upload our videos, um, at least without issues with our credentials, which is cool. <laughs> yeah that's cool because i mean always like in the morning i usually do a eight ssl login and then i mean eight hours is not in, enough yeah, for me it's so not the whole because i mean day. <laughs> yeah. there is um lunch break and things like that and then maybe i check something in the evening and then it's i have to ssl login again i mean that's kind of annoying yeah. absolutely once a day is good enough i think okay michael so um here's a message uh from our partners are you looking for a new job AWS expertise is in high demand. Our partner Demicon is looking for a senior lead full stack developer working remotely from Germany or from the EU. Are you really comfortable, comfortable with AWS and JavaScript frameworks? Then this is for you. Demicon is one of the largest technical consulting teams and leading Atlassian full service provider in the DAC region. So become part of a new team at Demicon with focus on cloud technologies. And then our partner TechRacer is hiring cloud consultants focusing on AWS and DevOps. So you should apply when you enjoy automating infrastructure and deployments with Terraform, CloudFormation, or the CDK. Join TechRacer in Hanover, Duisburg, Frankfurt, Hamburg, Munich, Vienna, Lisbon, uh, or Lucerne. You will find links to both job description in the show notes. And if one of them is interesting to you, you should definitely apply today. I want to share one thing that I learned um, uh, in the last week. Or I, actually, this was, I think, the week before, but that's not a big deal, right? So what I was wondering is, is I, 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 from time to time, I check our AWS builds. And I wonder why our KMS build is going up and up and up and up every year. <laughs> so... It turns out that if you enable KMS key rotation, which is, uh, of course, uh, one of the security checks of Security Hub, so they kind of force you to do it if you want to uh, have that check green, then you pay uh, not only $1 for each key, but every year you also pay $1 for the kind of previous version of the key. So, 
for example, after 10 years, you will not pay $1 per month for your key, but now you will pay $11 per month for the key. And the tricky thing is here that you cannot get rid of the old versions of the key. I mean, first, you don't see them, and second, they might be used somewhere. So, I mean, if you decrypt, then they are eventually used. So that's kind of a tricky problem. <laughs> and you have to, like, before you enable key rotation, think about the consequences. And it's I would say it's not very prominently uh, documented anywhere. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you have to be um, aware of that. Uh, so that's all I want to share here. So KMS key rotation is not just a tick of a box. It also has some implications on your AWS bill. And, like, I mean, as long as you stay on AWS, you will pay this $1 uh, additional <laughs> dollar every every year for your key. So it will not stop. <laughs> Uh, it's a, a money-making machine, basically. Very good. Yes, I think it's a money-making machine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, okay, so Michael, so um, we got a few questions uh, already um, during the week um, that we will try to answer now. So uh, if you have other questions, uh, feel free to uh, ask them in the chat. So the first question is um, from Sivaraman, um, and he asks, what's the difference between using resource groups and tag editors versus the AWS Resource Explorer? I mean... I don't think, as I'm, I mean, the difference is that the resource um, explorer is the newer kind of the newer service uh, from AWS or the newer capability. They, I think, they were created to solve a similar issue, but um, the resource groups never like. I mean, the, the the resource type coverage is also very bad there. So you, I mean, you don't find all resources; you just find some resources. Um, I think you can do more or less the same thing with uh, the new resource um, resource explorer. You can also search by tag, for example, which is possible with resource groups. I mean, with resource groups, basically, you can have a like you can. It's, it's kind of a predefined search in 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 the new service. So you can say, okay, if this tag applies and that tag applies, then this is a resource group kind of. Um, and and this is also possible with the new resource explorer. So. I don't think there's much of a difference. I hope that the resource coverage will increase in the new resource explorer soon for all the missing services, which are, I mean, we talked about this, I think, last um, last week. I mean, basically, everything is missing. So just a, a very a tiny amount of, of services is supported. So, yeah, I mean, if that changes quickly, I would say definitely use resource explorer. If that doesn't change quickly, I mean, none of them is any of any use, I would say. So that's kind of the problem here. Uh, so let's see how that uh, works out. Yeah, um, there is like, I think if you are coming from Azure or something, resource groups have no other implication than they are kind of a visibility thing in the UI. So you cannot kind of address them in other services. I mean, there are some. I think there's one exception. That's SSM. So in SSM, you can reference a resource group um, to do certain things. It's not supported of, for all the capabilities, but for some, um, there is no such integration yet into Resource Explorer. So I mean, that could be the only thing that kind of um, bites you at the moment if you migrate, basically. But uh, besides that, I'm not aware of anything else that, that relies on resource groups. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the next question is from NC AI and Machine Learning, uh, coming over a YouTube comment that I saw this morning. And I'm summarizing the question in my own words. So basically, um, the question is about the event bridge scheduler. Mm -hmm. And um, the question here is, if you want to use the event bridge scheduler, for example, to um, delay the execution of a task, and every time the task comes in, you create a new schedule, basically, then 
you will get a huge amount of uh, schedules. Uh, you end up with a huge amount of schedules in your in the list, basically. And the question is, how do you get rid of those schedulers that have been fired already? So I don't know if you, I don't know. You create a schedule, fire in five minutes, and then after it has been fired, how do you remove the thing? Um, as you're no longer using mm -hmm. it. So that's basically the question. And one approach that uh, NSAID AI and machine learning was thinking about is you could just iterate over the schedules and then delete those that are already fired. But the, the problem seems to be, I didn't check that, that from the API, you're not getting too much information, <laughs> basically with the list call. So you mm -hmm. cannot say, did that already fire or not? Uh, so you cannot mm -hmm. decide if you have to delete it. So... Um, a solution that I was thinking about is, and uh, um, unfortunately the documentation is still very um, limited, <laughs> so very poorly documented, the whole event scheduler thing. But one thing that I thought about is maybe you could delete the schedules in an event-driven way. So basically when the event fires, I expect that the ARN of the schedule is included in the event, which I could not find out from the documentation. And if that's the case, you could use that to basically delete the schedule immediately after you have received the event. So that was one idea that I came up with. I see. Yeah. And I, I saw lots of people kind of running into similar problems. So, I mean, this is only applies to this kind of trigger one schedule. So for in five minutes, do something in 10 minutes in one day or something. Um, it's not so for the recurring things. I mean, they kind of just keep on mm. going. Sure. But the the, the one-time schedules, um, I mean, they really, I mean, there's no much reason why they actually stay there or why they're not garbage collected basically automatically. Mm. So let's see, maybe that that kind of is is <laughs> maybe is, there will is, be a new feature. <laughs> yes, could be a new feature. And I think the the problem like behind all this is that there's a limit of one million schedules in your account, mm. and I think that's why people want to clean it up. Besides that, I mean, you could just keep them. Mm. <laughs> I mean, it it gets in the UI, it gets very messy, but. Create, uh, yeah. create a new account every one million schedules. <laughs> <laughs> That's another approach. Once you hit a limit. <laughs> All right. So um, that's it. We will be next week with another episode of Hot of the Cloud. Uh, in the meantime, subscribe to our newsletter, podcast, or the YouTube channel to make sure you're not missing upcoming shows. Also, we want to thank our supporters who make this show possible. So please consider supporting our work with a recurring or one-time donation as well. You will find details and links in the show notes. Thanks a lot for your attention. Bye. Bye. Thank you.